Welcome back, y'all, to episode eight of the Zachary Wingy Podcast. Bring a very interesting topic as it relates to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. I personally have lived in northern China, interacted with the Uyghurs, studied it in grad school, as well as worked for Freedom House, where we work on projects that help identify religious freedoms. Today, this podcast will be covering those topics, but remember, I will be doing this 365 days, covering all topics of interest to myself. Nothing is off the table. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome. Talking, listening to some weird music right now. So this is a topic that is something that is a little bit complicated to get into, but it's something I feel is really personal for me. Um, first and foremost, you know, I lived in China from 2011 to 2013, where I was a Peace Corps volunteer. One of the interesting things about the city I lived in, Lanzhou, China, is they had a very large Muslim population. China has about 10 million Han Muslims and about 10 million Uyghur Muslims. Now, the backstory about Xinjiang, which is the province in which the Uyghurs live, is it was taken over during the Tang Dynasty. Now, Xinjiang in itself in Chinese means new frontier. So this is a relatively new province within China province. And what it is, is it's a group that was originally part of Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, these kind of locations within this country. And it was taken over and is currently being forced to be a part of China. Now, the reason why I say that is Uyghurs within themselves are Sufi Muslims. They have a lot, they have different beliefs regular than than normal Chinese. Now, Xinjiang in itself geographically is really interesting because it has about 12 countries that touch it. And China is currently building a road to the Gwadar port, which is in Pakistan. And one of the roads it's going to go through is Xinjiang. So Xinjiang in itself is a strategic location within China. So the CCP, the People's Republic of China, have strategic interests within Xinjiang. I want to put that out there first just to understand the context of what I'll be getting into. The next thing is, what is my personal interaction with these group of people in northern China? Well, interesting enough, when I was in northern China, there's not a lot of foreigners, but there's a lot of Uyghurs because of the university. So naturally, people thought I was a Uyghur because I had kind of the same look, the same face, if you will. And it was something that was pretty interesting. And my first interaction with the Uyghur culture was through their food. They have a very unique food where they're kind of blending this um, Middle Eastern slash Chinese concept where they take cumin, they put it in the noodles, you know, they called it ding ding chow mian. And some people even credit the Uyghurs for originally creating the noodle. And this is what Marco Polo took back to China. So a lot of interesting things like that. Now, how I first started interacting with the Uyghur culture is I had two friends who were musicians and uh, we would play music together. And the first time I met them, I was actually on a tea house in the middle of Lanzhou and they were playing flamenco style guitar. And I honestly thought for a second that they were Spanish because they did not look Chinese. So this is really where 
I started to ask more questions and kind of understand about the Uyghur culture. So what I'd really determined at that point is that, you know, these, the, the religion really separated them because they were Sufi. And a big part of the Sufi religion is there's a lot of mysticism involved, but their diet is also really, really important. So, you know, they might drink beer, but they don't eat pork. If you cook pork on a pan, they can never eat on that pan. They, you know, if it's not halal, which is the, the prayer whenever you butcher meat, they couldn't eat it. So it's really interesting to see how f the first separation layer was food because there's certain places they could go and certain places they couldn't go. The next is language. Like I was saying, the Uyghurs are one of the only non-Sinophone cultures within China, meaning they originally don't speak Chinese. Their language is um, Uyghur, but it has roots within Arabic. So there's some there's some subtle transitions, but the original language is different. And obviously the third one, which I've been talking about, is is kind of the Sufism within itself. You know, with China, there's not a lot of religion as a whole as we see it you know they have some confucianism there is some christians and there is 10 million muslims in the gansu region and areas where the silk road touched um the next is what does xinjiang have to offer so within itself just giving you the context xinjiang is rich in minerals bromine bromite oil, gas, you know, these things are really important strategically. Also, all of the all the minerals that go into your cell phone whenever you touch the glass cover, all these minerals come from Xinjiang, and these are what's making the phone. So China has a strategic interest. But what's happening within the, the Xinjiang environment is China's really clamping down on them, and they have been for the last 40 to 50 years, you know, it it really goes to say that, you know, there's been riots and things going on, you know, all the way back from the 80s. You know, there was a big riot, though, in 2009, you know, and and, and you're constantly seeing um, kind of a, a, a hand kind of bearing down on them. One of the one of the first things is, you know, whenever the East Turkmenistan movement was happening, State Department deemed them as a terrorist group. And then. Later, we we de we de claim them as a terrorist group because we realized they were fighting for religious freedom. You know, they are really a part of the East Turkmenistan movement is what is kind of being pushed. But when I say that we are witnessing potentially a culture being erased from the face of the earth, that's what we're seeing. You know, when I interacted with the Uyghurs, when I've studied it. You know, what you have is you have this systematic conditioning to almost try to eliminate the Uyghur identity with, through the Chinese. You know, there were certain situations where they couldn't have beards. You know, that's a really big part of their culture. They can only have mustaches. You know, they had to sell certain products. They had to have Chinese names, you know, and, you, and the government is indicating that you have to have it. I think one situation when I was an intern at Freedom House, which was really interesting is we met with Abi Karem, and she is a Uyghur um, civil rights activist. And she's located in D.C., and it's really interesting because I watched a documentary, and then eventually I got to meet her, which was amazing. Um, but we we interviewed an imam, and, and, you know, and who knows how credible, you know, when you're, when you're interviewing someone, they were essentially being interviewed because they were living in Turkey. And this was... 
back in 2017, and they were being interviewed, and essentially what he was saying is that he was held captive because he was he was a religious um, figure within the community. He might have spoke out a little bit against the Chinese, and they put him in these these prisons. And if you Google it, they have these huge prisons, like that are just like concentration camp almost type prisons. And the gentleman was put in there, and what he was telling us is that, you know, there was a lot of things going on within within the jail system. You had you know, people, 15 people in one cell that was very small, and they had to shave their beards off consistently. Now, what he said would, within this environment is that, you know, the, the Chinese people would do really crazy stuff. Like in one instance, he was indicating that they had brought someone from Shanghai who had HIV and put them in the same gel cell and made them use the same razors. Now, I cannot... Um, this is just what he said, so I can't really confirm it, but it's just interesting that that's what he would say for these situations. And then you have constant situations, too, where you have, you know, a lot of violence being brought to the Uyghur people. You have, you know, people essentially putting in schools, which is another aspect of it, is they have boarding schools where they take the kids and they recondition them into a Chinese party um, culture where they're, where they're essentially enforcing Chinese culture on them and making sure they take a Chinese name, not a Uyghur name, because they do have different aspects within the language. So you're getting all these classifications happening where you're, they're really trying to alleviate the issue. Now, we, we know China strategically is, and we know Xinjiang is strategically important in China. Now, has there been situations of violence? Yes, I mean, there has been. You know, there's been situations where the Uyghurs of the East Turkmenistan movement could potentially, I think they went into a train in Chongqing and they stabbed like 14 people, which was pretty violent. And they're trying, you know, but in itself, you know, with the Sufis, they're such a peaceful group, you know, and they haven't had, we haven't seen a lot. But when I talk with people within Xinjiang, they for sure are scared of the Chinese government. There were certain conversations they didn't want to have with me because the cell phone was close. You know, they were always really aware of what was being said and the optics of where they were. They 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 didn't know at any point if they were going to be profiled or what. But what's so interesting, too, about the people is they look so different. I mean, there was a Uyghur that was six foot four, had red hair, you know, blue eyes. And then there was a Uyghur who looked more Chinese and an ethnic group. So it's almost like a melting pot of culture. Um, and the people there are, you know, when I interacted with them, they were very warm. You know, you know, I felt like, I don't know why, I think maybe because I had a beard, but it was the only people I looked like, but I felt some type of, of kinship with them. You know, I would, I would interact with them. I'd ask questions. I'd play a lot of music with them. And it really gave me a good insight into the culture. And then in studying it, in grad school, what I really saw is there is this campaign to erase aspects of the Uyghur culture out of them so China can have more influence in the region. I mean, China, too, has been moving people to Xinjiang for the last 20 years. So if you have a company in Xinjiang, you know, they want more Chinese people to be moving there to impact the culture, to have more more um, strategic gain within within 
within Xinjiang. So that's proven. I mean, I've studied that. I've read it. So there's all these aspects going into the Uyghur culture, and they're really trying to dissolve it and implement something in that's more of a Chinese-focused culture. And with with the new road coming in related to the One Belt, One Road initiative from Xi Jinping, I mean, we're going to see Xinjiang really change in the next 15 to 20 years. I mean, coming in off the Gwadar port, it's like, you know, China is so so strong we're in Beijing and Shanghai for their ports, but because they don't have anything on the backside, logistically it creates a lot of issues, a lot of bottlenecks. So China's not gonna get rid of Xinjiang. You know, the people are really gonna have to to come together in in and have situations like this where we have podcasts where we talk about it. You know, where we, we identify what's going on, where we really are aware of it so we can see the impact of it. And the final thing that I really leave with to drive this home is that the Chinese government doesn't allow Uyghurs to have the Quran, which is a religious text, which is equivalent to the Bible, and they're clamping down on it. And to really drive this home, I will read a quote that I had found um, as it relates to the Quran, but... A gentleman, I'll just, is indicating, saying, when I was, my son's age, at eight years old, I knew the Quran by heart. Now, my son, which is eight, doesn't know the Quran, because it's illegal to teach Islam in Xinjiang by the CCP. I will still teach him, because I love Allah. I mean, with that being said, I mean, that type of text, that type of oppression is so strong. To take someone's religion and tell them they can't believe in it because it I resonates with their identity. I mean, it's it's just every time I think about it, it makes me so angry. And that's why I'm happy I'm doing this podcast so people can learn about it. They can understand it. And we can put the content out there to be aware of it because it is atrocity. You know, I don't say the word genocide lightly, but it's a genocide on their culture. You know, there's murder going on. You know, there's these aspects are happening daily within the Uyghur population. And, you know, whenever you meet them, they are just the nicest people. You know, they are just so warm and, and, and they have such a rich culture. And it's just really sad to see it. Well, thank you for listening. That's all I have today. Please like and follow. If there's any content you'd like me to cover, DM me. Have a good one.